thank you all for coming. Uh, we have quite a lot of you tonight, so that's great. Um, my name is uh, Rohan Al-Gandhi. I teach the history of modern Iran um, and the Persian Gulf here at the LSE. Uh, and on behalf of the uh, Middle East Center, uh, I'm very happy to welcome you all. I see a lot of familiar faces. I'm glad most of my students have shown up. That's excellent. Um, we have with us someone who is absolutely uh, no stranger to uh, LSE. But before I introduce him, just a couple of housekeeping things. Um, first of all, please put your phones on silent. Okay. Preferably switch them off. I think that's probably too much to ask for in this day and age. Um, and uh, uh, so Chris is going to speak for about 50 minutes or so, 40 to 50 minutes, yep. um, which will leave us plenty of time for Q&A. Um, so Dr. Chris Emery uh, is a lecturer in international relations uh, at the University of Plymouth. But uh, uh, before that, and as we will always remember him, he was our colleague here at LSE. He was an LSE fellow in the Department of International Relations for many years. Um, he completed his PhD at the University of Birmingham and has also held teaching positions at the University of Warwick and the University of Nottingham. Um, and he is the author of a number of um, excellent articles on uh, US-Iran relations and US foreign policy uh, towards Iran. But, of course, most notably, and the reason why we're all here, um, his new book, uh, U.S. Foreign Policy and the Iranian Revolution, The Cold War Dynamics of Engagement um, and Strategic Alliance. And this is, uh, and I'm not just saying this because Chris is here, it is a, a very important book. Um, it's a book that uh, we've been waiting quite some time for because it is really the most thorough detailed study based on pretty uh, detailed archival research of US foreign policy during the Iranian Revolution, which was, after all, the most significant setback for US policy in the Middle East during all of the Cold War. Um, so it's a real, I've just been reading it, I'm, about, I'm not all the way through yet, but it is a real page turner, um, and I thoroughly enjoy it. I've already got a list of questions for you, but I'll wait till you. Um, That's the entire Christmas. Yes, exactly. So, uh, without further ado, please join me in welcoming Dr. Emery. Attempt to speak without a microphone for a start. If uh, for some reason I fail or whatever, and I'll, I'll happily uh, move on to the to the uh, amplified crutch. Many thanks, uh, Rohan, for your kind uh, introduction. I, I spent three fantastic years at the LSC, and it's great to be back. Uh, I think actually I joined at the same time as you, and um, we both arrived, arrived uh, with a shared passion for US-Iranian relations and Cold War history, and your profound suspicion of IR theory. So uh, it's for your benefit that there's actually very little. <laughs> Another excellent thing. <laughs> yes. um, I'd also like to thank uh, my partner, Anna, and my sister, Fiona, who's also representing my parents, who sadly couldn't be here. Um, I have some friends here who, uh, who probably arrived on the promise of wine. That I'm sorry about that. Um, but they're also no doubt surprised that my academic engagement extends beyond posting tedious uh, Facebook articles about Iran and uh, 
Some may, in fact, uh, have come to uh, definite proof that I can and actually did write a, a book. So, you're all welcome. So, the fund fundamental purpose of my book was really to examine America's response to perhaps its gravest, one of its gravest foreign policy challenges. And that's in the early 19th century, and this truly earth-shattering uh, historical event which profoundly destroyed America's Cold War strategy in the Middle East, exploded political Islam onto the international system, led to a doubling of oil prices in a year, and uh, not only was it a profound uh, foreign policy crisis in and of itself, but either directly or indirectly led to the two regional era-defining conflicts of this period, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and uh, the Iran-Iraq war. And of course, finally, it, it led to this original sin, uh, on, at least from the American perspective, of the Iranian hostage crisis, uh, an egregious act of criminality that uh, probably cost Carter re-election, humiliated America, and of course blackened Iran's name uh, in the international uh, community, and so initiated perhaps one of the longest and most bitter confrontations in uh, contemporary international relations. And I think when, on that uh, snowy morning of February 11th, 1979, when uh, Carter gathered his advisers in the White House to uh, discuss the unfolding calamity, the Shah had gone, his final uh, supporters were either being rounded up or, or were dead. You can imagine the, the, the complete shock, the incredulity, that this 76-year-old cleric espousing a rather esoteric brand of Shia Islam had succeeded in dislodging one of America's most loyal and powerful allies in the Middle East. And we kind of take it for granted now that political Islam is a, a kind of force in contemporary global politics. But it's important to note that this was really not the case uh, in the 1970s. I mean, from sort of Palestinian terrorism to the Red Brigade to the 1978 revolution in Afghanistan, the revolutionary threat was from the left. And this was something that America had no experience, no reference point for radicalism. And another key feature, this was not an armed revolution. The revolutionaries who chucked out the Shah were not well armed. And in fact, the, armies, the Shah's army stood at 300,000, backed with the latest US military technology, and it just evaporated. It went. Now, for some time, sort of low-level U.S. officials have been warning of a looming crisis in Iran that um, the Shah was dangerously isolated from his population, that he was indecisive, that he was suffering from depression, that his, his kind of rampant modernisation binge that he'd inflicted upon his country, which is a very traditional country, was too fast, too much. Then America's presence in the country was too big, too culturally insensitive. The Shah was not saving his oil wealth. He was, he was vulnerable to a collapse of the economy if the oil uh, price collapsed. And that there was a, a kind of demographic ticking time bomb in Iran. And none of these warnings registered. Washington essentially gambled and lost. Uh, they backed the Shah to survive, as he had for decades, in fact. They ignored the corruption, the mismanagement, the brutality. Uh, they failed to forge close links with the opposition. They had relegated Iran policy behind what was seen as the more pressing issues of the time, and they were pressing issues that 
historic Middle East uh, peace process between uh, the uh, Israelis and the Egyptians, the uh, strategic arm limitation treaties with the Soviets, uh, detente with China, all of these pressing foreign policy crises. And really, for the first two years, Iran doesn't really get a look in when it comes to, if you look at the kind of the agenda of National Security Council meetings in the, in the Carter administration, the, and, and the very notion that the, the kind of this political uh, Islam can mobilise a wide range of disaffected Iranians is, is just not something that they had any kind of reference point. The result was essentially they had no real plan for a post-Shah Iran. Uh, all they had was a massive Cold War problem. And the central purpose of my book, I suppose, was to sort of, you know, for so long Washington had resisted any serious rethinking of Iran policy. And now they had no option but to readjust to this new reality in Iran. And it's really the nature and the legacy of that adjustment that I wanted to look at um, now, I, I always like to give some outlines in my lectures. I think, for some reason, it gives a kind of illusion of coherence and, and purpose. But uh, I thought, uh, for this case, I'll, I'll try to do sort of a little bit of, of the same here. Um, I'll start, I want to talk a little bit what sort of motivated me to write this, uh, this book, uh, apart from I had this, something to do with this PhD. But uh, there were some, some other deeper thought processes, I promise you. Um, I want to also address how the narrative that I present in my book is actually quite an important corrective to how the Iranians actually view uh, the, the events that we will discuss. I want to address a fundamental but largely uh, ignored question, which is why, in early 1979, did the Americans even try to engage the new government in Iran? Um, and of course, then I'll, I'll sort of look how they tried to engage it, how it all went wrong and then how U.S. objectives were kind of refashioned in light of these two major sort of geopolitical events, the, uh, the, the, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, the Iran-Iraq war, and of course the hostage crisis. <coughs> if I have time, and I, I hope I do, I don't know if I'm rattling along at too sort of fast a pace, I also want to look at the, the contemporary relevance in terms of what we've all probably seen. And perhaps one of the reasons why this room is so full is because U.S.-Iranian relations has been so prominent uh, in the media recently, and it appears to be, or has the potential to, to really have a transformational effect on both Iranian and uh, American foreign policy at the moment. So I'd like to talk a little bit about what's going on in Geneva at the moment, and how my, my work can fit with that. So, to start at the beginning, although this is perhaps not quite the beginning now, why, why do I write the book? Now, if you look at the sort of the literature on the Carter policy in Iran, it's kind of bookended. There's a big mass of what went wrong, why they didn't predict the revolution, um, how this kind of bureaucratic politics and faulty intelligence, faulty thinking, really made them blind to what to what was occurring in Iran, and the floundering policy of the Shah kind of collapsed. The second large sort of other end of the, of the, of the, of the bookend is the handling of the hostage crisis. Um, leading up to this disastrous rescue mission uh, that occurs in uh, April 1980. So quite a lot sort of been written about what went wrong. And I thought that not much had been written about how they tried to put things right. How particularly in that period, when they accept the Shah's gone, in sort of January, February 79, to the kind of collapse, November 79, the hostage crisis, how America tried to, to really 
put things right and reach out. There is a little bit of work on this, but it, it's kind of, it tends to be almost exclusively that the memoirs of former US officials written about 20 years ago. Uh, the one notable exception is probably Mark Gazirowski's work, uh, who, who, who you know, I'll talk a little bit about later. Another reason that I tried to write this book is that the sense of, dis not, not to put too bleakly, but the diminishing opportunity to, to speak to people who are out of the period. I mean, um, if you're in government during the Carter period now, you are, you know, you're in your 80s, or maybe late 70s, uh, Carter himself, 90, 90 I don't know. Um, William Sullivan, the ambassador to Iran, a central character to the events that I'm looking at, he died just a month ago, another guy, you know, David Newsom died just before I was trying to... So without trying to be too macabre, these guys were dropping, and it was important <laughs> for me to, uh, to sort of in interview them, uh, and, and actually the experience of interviewing them. It was uh, the emotion that you get just from talking to these people. For example, Charlie Nars, the guy who was the charge of affairs, the sort of uh, second-in-command of the embassy, actually once the ambassador left, the number one, and this guy carries around the scars to this day because he was essentially the one who, about a month before the hostage crisis, said, I've had enough. I've been spending the last nine months looking at this crowd at the gate, thinking any minute they're going to come over the top. I've already had a Kalashnikov put at my head once. I've been threatened by death when they, in the February 79 uh, uh, embassy invasion. My wife's long gone, you know, it's, it's tough for me, and I, I, I can't take it anymore. And he left, and Bruce Langen turns up, is sent to Iran as his replacement, and within a month, he is spending 444 days in, uh, as a hostage. And the profound guilt of this guy was actually quite palpable and quite moving. So, speaking to these people, I found was, was important. Um, I was also equally struck by... The fact that American policy in this period really uh, continues to frame the US-Iran relationship. Now, over nearly four decades of dysfunctional relations, the two sides have, have kind of... The, their perceived grievances have been woven into competing discourses of, of uh, demonization. Now, at the centre of Iran's discourse is their claim, or at least the Supreme Leader's claim, that Washington never accepted the revolution never did, and from day one attempted to smother it, to, to destroy it. Um, in, in 2008, the Supreme Leader, Ayatollah told an audience of Friday prayers that there hasn't been a day in which America's had good t intentions towards Iran. So according to this kind of narrative that, that uh, he presents, the Islamic Republic bravely and serenely survived despite an immediate and sustained attempt to destroy it. Uh, this is often repeated uh, in state media, for example, uh, Kayan, a hard newspaper. So since the first day of the victory of the Islamic Revolution, Western powers, led by America, launched a project to abolish the revolution. Now, this, the serious utility, political utility of this narrative, and, and it's one thing that I noticed was being regurgitated a lot during the 2009 uh, election crisis in Iran, uh, there's, there's work by Mika Warner, who's shown it in her, her kind of analysis of, of competing discourses of legitimacy, how Harkon has repeatedly characterised what the Green Movement as an attempted US-instigated plot, a counter-revolution counter coup, very much in line with uh, what they've been trying to do since the, since, the, since the first day. So I was kind of interested in, in, in whether that narrative held up. 
There's also, this, this, the very same narrative underpins the state-sanctioned justification for this original sin of the, of the, the siege of the American embassy in, in November 79. Now, calling the US embassy a nest of spies, it wasn't just a rhetorical flourish or an element of cathartic revolutionary discourse. They were generally, I, I mean, I don't think anybody had a clear plan of what they were trying to achieve, by the way, but they certainly seemed convinced that the embassy was actually a base for counter-revolutionary plots, and that storming it was thus a, a legitimate defensive action. And again, this is the official version, again, the Supreme Leader says, at an audience of Friday prayers, from the beginning of the Islamic Revolution, they made the embassy a place for planning conspiracies, and these activities led the students to attack. And uh, this, you know, so again, I think my overall um, motivation of my book was to sort of try and debunk that, that narrative. And, uh, I think that the, essentially the confrontation between the US and Iran now seems so vitriolic, so, so ideologically entrenched, that it's actually very easy to lose sight of, of the effort that the Americans put to, to reach an accommodation with Iran in 79. So my, my general findings was that, that contrary to, to their claims, there, there was no conspiracy, there was no effort to bring down the revolution. And actually, if you look at it, America fretted over Iran's destabilization because they saw instability in Iran as the most likely precursor to Soviet adventurism in, in the Gulf. So they went to significant again, uh, events and uh, uh, attempts to, to engage the new government. But on the other hand, I didn't want to, to sort of write a one-sided account of American good intentions and um, Iranian paranoia and hostility because there is... <laughs> There were some very good reasons why the U.S. doubted uh, American motivations in Iran. I mean, the U.S. had, after all, played a leading role in sustaining the, uh, the rule of the authoritarian leader that the revolutionaries had just shed blood to, to remove. Uh, nor was it, of course, implausible that America would support a coup in Iran, as they had done in 1953. Um, many of Iran's new leaders had suffered torture under the, the Shah's regime, and generally convinced that the so that the security forces had been trained by the CIA. Um, Carter had declared his acceptance of, acceptance of the revolution, but it was widely known that sort of hardline elements, particularly uh, Brzezinski, had uh, favoured a coup. So from this perspective, at very best, America had a long way to go to demonstrating its acceptance of the revolution. At worst, it already had Iranian blood on its hand and had declared itself... Uh, uh, a, an enemy of the revolution. The other kind of orthodoxy that I wanted to examine was um, a little bit more controversial because the American version is essentially they got it all wrong, they missed the revolution, when the revolution occurred they tried in good faith but essentially there was nothing they could do once those ideologically opposed to uh, any kind of rapprochement gained power. And in other words, nothing more really could have been done after the revolution occurred. And again, I wanted to look at this, and, and, and you know, far from trying to blame anybody, I just thought, you know, could things have been altered had different decisions been made, ultimately? Um, you know, and it's impossible to know. But what I did find out, what I did, I am convinced of, is that clearly poor decisions were taken, sensible advice was ignored, and ultimately, the foundations for a new policy in Iran were not built on solid intellectual grounds. Um, 
and really the manner in which that engagement was pursued guaranteed its failure, in, in my view. Um, so, whether Iran, America could have done better, which is, hostile, which is very controversial in, in America, um, is disputable, but I personally think they could have done better. So back to this sort of the second tick, second bar. What was the, I mean, why did they bother? Why engage this new regime? And it's not an obvious move uh, in his celebrated study of um, US foreign policy and ideology. Michael Hunt highlights the sort of general suspicion that America's elites have had towards uh, uh, foreign revolutions. And this was, of course, a revolutionary uh, movement that had just swept aside a powerful American ally. Um, the revolution's unassailable spiritual leader, Ayatollah Khomeini, had made its hostility to the Shah's strategic alliance with America clearly apparent. Uh, Iranian broadcasting and, and, and various covert actions immediately tried to sort of spread the revolution to uh, ultimately overthrow a lot of pro-American allies in the area. Um, Khomeini was known to oppose the peace process, the process between Egypt and Israel, and the CIA predicted that he would, Iran would soon adopt very hostile relations to those two countries, as, as indeed it did. Uh, it was widely understood that post-revolutionary Iran would support uh, anti-Israeli militant groups, specifically the PLO, which they did, and the PLO comes in and helps to train revolutionary guard. And this kind of banner of death to America again quite quickly becomes established, or this, at least this anti-Americanism becomes quite quickly established as a, as a, as a banner, as, as a slogan of, of Khomeini's revolutionary identity. So given that so much of what was predicted very quickly seems to run contrary to American interests. Uh, you would have thought containment, I don't know, downright confrontation, or even just ambivalence uh, could have been the policies that were pursued. So in other words, engagement wasn't the obvious answer, and why did they go for it? Um, part, I mean, initially part of the answer lies in Carter's own belief system. This, uh, you know, this, this, I mean, uh, uh, the, the, the first analysis, engagement was possible because Carter did not attempt to strangle the revolution of birth. And it's worth bearing in mind the context in which Carter himself uh, comes to power. This kind of, basically as a non-Nixon. Next to an expert on Nixon and the Shah, so some trepidation here. Um, but the, bear in mind, the 1970s here is a disastrous decade for the presidency and for American foreign policy in many ways. Uh, well, there's some victories to talk, but, but bear in mind we're in a post-Vietnam, a post-Watergate era where there's a moral crisis in American power. The CIA had gone rogue, the church committee was uncovering all kinds of nefarious activities bearing from assassinations, you know, drug trials, the MKUltra stuff, placing US citizens under surveillance, which is illegal under the, the CIA's mandate. Um, the Democratic Party had swung to the left, that the Republican Party was starting its inexorable swing towards the right. Carter comes in as an outsider, as a, an anti-Nixon, uncorrupted by service in Washington, uh, a governor of Georgia and an evangelical Christian peanut farmer guy with no experience of foreign policy, um, but a mandate to restore American uh, moral credibility. And during his election campaign, he speaks loftily about human rights, uh, about you know, no longer supporting authoritarian dictators at any cost, 
rolling back the use of arms sales as a tool of foreign policy, and ultimately to roll back the Nixon doctrine to redress the balance between Cold War realism, human rights, and morality. And for obvious reasons, this horrifies the Shah, because you know, uh, he sees that this is exactly the kind of leader that, that Carter will be gunning for. Um, suffice to say, he needn't have worried. <laughs> Carter essentially comes in as confronted with an entrenched position uh, of the Cold War context, and, and there's no way he's going to throw the Shah under a bus. Um, and essentially, he continues the policies of his predecessor. Arms sales are only symbolically driven back. When the Shah comes to the Washington for its first state um, uh, visit in um, November 77, very little is said about human rights. So, there's not much of a change in US foreign policy at this point. But, when Mar Carter's moral kind of operational code, if you want to say, comes back in, is when, the, when he's struggling. When the Shah looks like he's going, and this huge policy chasm opens up amongst Carter's main advisors. And you've got the Hawks on one hand, Brzezinski, supported by uh, DCI Turner, to a lesser extent, Harold Brown, Secretary of Defence, who are saying, the hard line, the iron fist option, we've got to crush these people. This country is too central to the Cold War confrontation for it to go. And then he's got the kind of the, the other side of the, the kind of the, 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 the other side of, the, of Cyrus Vance and, State, and the State Department saying, "No, what we need here is, is you know, try and get into reform. If you can't reform, let's try and put together some kind of transitional unity government. But let's try and avoid bloodshed." Which, of course, to give the Shah credit, is also his position. He ultimately is driving what's going on. America has no capacity at this point. Um, so Carter refuses to sort of commit to, 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 to either the Iron Fist solution, but he also does generally um, refuse to commit to what the State Department is saying, which is try and open up some links with the opposition here. Um, the result is no policy. And essentially Washington is left as a bystander as this, this government uh, collapses. So, part of the answer in terms of why bother in re engaging this regime is... Cold War strategy. Hence why the book is the Cold War Dynamics of Engagement. The loss of the Shah had uh, deprived Washington of its strongest regional ally, a customer for its sophisticated weaponry. Perhaps critically, the, the um, intelligence facilities vital for monitoring Moscow's compliance with SOC 2. Okay, so these SIGINT facilities that sat in northern Iran and were able to monitor Soviet missile testing. They were absolutely critical and they were not easily replaced. This was a point where, where salt really was struggling, so that was a really important uh, ingredient here. And as the Shah had been sort of uh, in, uh, tasked with defending the northern tier from Soviet encroachment, his demise clearly portended of increased Soviet uh, instigated instability. I mean, such was the scale of the disaster here that the US initially kind of believes there's a KGB hidden hand in the revolution, and um, various sort of memos and things that pass around, uh, mainly circulated by Brzezinski, but they, they very quickly give up on this. It's more the case of opportunism. Not direct Soviet instigation, but the ability of the Soviets to exploit a power vacuum uh, in uh, Iran. And as a State Department assessment uh, warns that another major setback, such as the ousting of Sadat, <coughs> collapse of Arab-Israeli peace process, political instability in Saudi Arabia, another slump in US-Turkish relations, could 
put the region dangerously uh, out of control. Brzezinski warns Carter that the resulting power vacuum might well be filled by elements more sympathetic to the Soviet Union. And in the Iranian sort of Communist Party, the Tudor Party, there was this perception, wrong perception, that this was this kind of proxy force in waiting. Um, so what we have is a power vacuum, and as a CIA estimate says, an increased Soviet perception of the area's vulnerability and a willingness to exploit it. Now, Cold War strategy doesn't like power vacuums in a general uh, rule of things. And if, in other words, if America didn't move to, to in some way fill this power vacuum, uh, then the Soviets would exploit Iran's instability. So I guess here you can sort of step back and forgive a bit of IR, but uh, a bit of kind of the structuralist argument here would be that there, there was kind of realist, uh, or the realist analysis would be the leads are very sensitive to fluxing international systems, balance of power, and in other words, there was some kind of systemic imperative that was leading them towards engagement. Um, I think there's some truth to that. I mean, it was, there was inevitably going to be uh, a development of the new policy in Iran was inevitably going to be uh, kind of uh, guided by considerations of power and material interests. A Soviet-centric organising principle was, was the point of departure. But again, for the reasons I said before, th there's no obvious evidence of uh, a pattern in American foreign policy that shows a predisposed inclination towards revolutionary movements. I think realism could equally have dictated the policy of, of isolation and containment of confrontation. So I think it's the next part of my book which really looked was, okay, we've got this Cold War crisis, but it's necessary to explore how Americans understood the nature of the Islamic Revolution and not just the Cold War crisis it provoked. So that's the sort of, uh, sort of the next task. Now, this kind of goes into the dynamic engagement and any state looking to engage another state must access its new elites uh, covertly or overtly in order to firstly gain influence, the personal contacts, but also to get a handle on what their likely foreign policy orientation is going to be. Now, usually the earlier the better, but as we've seen recently, leaders don't like to abandon old allies until they know that they are finished. And we've seen this uh, in Egypt with Mubarak. At the same time, you know, forging a, a relations with elites, new elites, who may or may not uh, assume positions of power is also a generally unappealing uh, proposition uh, for typically risk-averse leaders. So we've got this problem. When, and it's a, it's a constant problem in the US, when do we give up on our allies? When do we say you are lost? Because in theory, prior to the collapse of um, the Shah, most of the, the real important leaders in Iran are accessible. They're either in exile, Khomeini in, in Paris, or they are, there, is, there is contact with them in Iran. Um, so they, they could have, in, in some way, kind of, um, in some way, uh, opened up lines of, of communication with them. There's some kind of also FPA work on, on hypothesis, on, on misperception in terms of when it's most likely to occur, and thinking more mainly of the work of Bob Jervis from Columbia University, who says, Misperception is most likely to occur when an actor is not just miscategorized <coughs> according to uh, existing typologies, but when that typology doesn't even exist. Now, Khomeini's complex mix of sheer jurisprudence situated in a very unique historical development in Iran was beyond categorization, I think, for American. But what were categorizable were this kind of old nationalist elites who were mainly Western educated who wore suits, who spoke good English, and 
it's these guys uh, who seem to sort of understand international relations in broadly orthodox ways. Um, and this is the kind of classic elite-driven model for, for American diplomacy, whether it's Shalabi in Iraq. Or US policy has been to access elites who essentially speak English, attended US universities, and try and maneuver them into influence. Um, and that's what they do. And where, so where are these things? Why are they so widely available? Why are they so well known? Well, what we look at now is actually is that the, um, the process had been, been going for actually quite long. The US had access to these Iranian elites since sort of 1978, late 1978, 1979. Um, there's essentially sort of two or three different channels for these elite interactions, I think I call it in the book. Uh, the first one is in Iran, where uh, John Stemple, a political counselor, political, political officer, sorry, um, forms a relationship with uh, Mohammed uh, Tabasoli, who is the uh, high ranking member of the liberation movement, which is one of the two main nationalist opposition uh, movements in, in Iran. Uh, Tabasoli essentially then introduces him to uh, Barzidan and, and uh, uh, Sahabi and all these kind of other leading figures in the liberation movement. Uh, and they stay in contact. And, and what we, if you look at the documents here, uh, um, sort of the telegram sent back, a lot of it is saying, it's like, hey, these, are, these guys are pretty anti-communist here, you know, we can do business with them. Um, so they talk about the leftist threat, they talk about how, how they're concerned about the Soviet Union. Um, um, so that's the first channel. The, the second involves this guy, this kind of interesting guy, the Mercurial Richard Cotton. This guy, uh, who had been a former CIA officer, who had served in Iran since the 50s, then become an academic, uh, essentially becomes the de facto State Department's advisor on Iran. Uh, one of the few people also to have met uh, Khomeini. Um, and again, he is very important for engendering this idea that this opposition have the right anti-communist credentials. Uh, he says that he describes in a one member of Khomeini's circle as afraid of the Soviet Union and desirous of relying on the US for Iran's uh, defence. Uh, Cotton adds that they did not seek a kind of formal defensive relationship, but they certainly wanted America's backing against the Soviets. Uh, the third one, the third connection is in Paris and involves a guy called uh, Warren Zimmerman, a political counsellor at the Paris Embassy who also meets with uh, Ibrahim Yazdi, the future foreign minister, exactly the same analysis. Essentially, uh, opposition committed to obtaining ties with the West and wary of the Soviet Union. So, again, we've got this idea of an engagement strategy starting with mobilising the communist threat. Uh, it's worth pointing out that there are sort of some uh, reports that are filtered out. That, 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 you know, for example, one intelligence report says that Khomeini has consistently said that Islam requires a neutrality or a non-alignment. Um, in, in December, there's another memo that says that Yazdi dismissed the communists. So there is some evidence saying this might not actually be the best way, but in fact, these guys are not really Cold War warriors, but they're, they're essentially filtered out. Now, that's the first pathology, I think, that, that's important for expanding engagement. This, this idea that there are people here who understand the Cold War and same we do. In the same way we do. The second one is their pathology, in, in other words, concerning uh, clerical authority in Iran. This idea that the clerics were essentially unequipped and uninterested in running the actual instruments of state. Um, and it was the prevailing view here is that it was just inconceivable that clerics could run a modern nation state. 
Brzezinski dismissively advised Carter that religious institutions rarely succeed in dominating the political system of Muslim countries. Um, the perception of, that Khomeini would only have a, a sort of distant influence on policy was sort of less uh, the product of a kind of close reading of Shia tradition of quietism, but uh, sort of much more a reflection of America's general ignorance on political Islam, and, and, and something that just really hadn't got uh, a reference point again for. Again, I think here, I, I'm not going to be too harsh on this because it's worth mentioning that, that, that nobody thought terrorists could run a modern country. The Shah didn't think that modern terrorists could run a modern country. So, so, you know, give him a little leeway here, but I think that there were some signs that were, that, that he would, that Khamenei's ambitions and ability to dominate rivals were missed. Uh, one was the, the homage that uh, nationalist leaders paid to him whilst he was in exile. All of these sort of secular leaders come and sort of bend their knee and submit to, to an Islamic government and ruling out any accommodation with the Bakhtaya government, which was the Shah's last <coughs> government. And when, in fact, Bakhtaya does um, um, finally accept uh, the sh uh, a position with the Shah, he's, he's completely ostracised. Um, and even the CIA, the low-level analysts, analysts are warning that Khamenei does have actually bigger uh, uh, ambitions. One says, Khamenei will be the single most important factor in determining what will happen uh, with Iran. These signs were ignored, and, and the more pressing ones are things like that Khamenei seems bored with political strategy and apparently allows his aides to work out the details. So I think what, what we're looking at here is, is we're looking at an engagement strategy that's going to be targeted on the nationalists, and it's going to ignore the clerics. Um, and I think what the Americans failed to see is that the old nationalists embraced Khamenei from a position of weakness. Uh, their alliance was the result of some common ideological stances on the role of Islam, but it was more importantly their lack of kind of revolutionary credentials or first-class political leaders. So we've got the this is the, the foundations: Cold War realism focused exclusively on Western educated uh, moderates, and, and this is what's put into practice. Where uh, Hamilton Jordan, class chief of staff, says in February '79, for better or worse, the U.S. now has a stake in trying to build relations with this new government. And it looks kind of promising, because this first provisional government, which is appointed, not elected, appointed by Khamenei, it's got, uh, you know, essentially leaders of the liberation movement who Americans have been meeting for about a year. Uh, Barzagan, the Prime, the Prime Minister, uh, again, was well known. His deputy, Abir, uh, Abbas Amir Entazam, uh, had been an American resident for 20 years, been in contact with American officials since the 1950s. Um, and I think it's something like five out of the first cabinet are American green card, green card carriers. Um, in other words, these are people that the US think they can do business with. And actually, if you look, close inter-elite interactions have been the hallmark with US foreign policy in Iran for, 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 for before the revolution, with the Nixon and the Shah, Kissinger and Sahidi, Brzezinski and Vesey. Ali Ansari uh, writes that the entire US-Iranian relationship is based more on personalities rather than states. And this is really what we're going to see here as well. Except, during the revolution, the US is going to rely on an even narrower base. So here we go. This is, this is the, the intellectual foundations. How do they go about uh, mobilizing the, the, the communist threat, essentially? Um, if you look at... Uh, this, is, this is essentially how... The, the government set out in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a memo sent to the Secretary of State France. 
as, as the kind of modus operandi for engagement. We accept the revolution, we know the Shah is not coming back, we realise there's a legacy of past history that must be overcome, we think that the US-Iranian relations are too important to remain as they are today. Uh, Iran is important to the US and we believe we have much to offer the new government. We both start from a basic opposition to Soviet encroachment and we must build a new relationship from there. That's clearly signposted. Charlie Niles, who I discussed earlier, he was essentially the point man, the man on the ground doing the engaging. He goes around and he starts meeting the new ministers. And, he, and as verbatim he told to me, his, his opening line we understand that the kind of relations we had with His Majesty would be quite different. We still believe there is sufficient common interests. And to stick on a little bit further, the Soviet Union is still there. The Tudor is still there. Regarding these great problems of security, if we can be helpful, fine, but we know that has changed. Now, the problem I see it here is this kind of Cold War mobilisation, this Cold War engagement, really misses the point. It does not mark a fundamental new policy. In other words, the central purpose of the Iranian Revolution was to take Iran out of the Cold War paradigm, to remove Iran from being a site of superpower competition, of confrontation. And by saying we are, you know, basically want to rebuild a less lucrative, less visible version of the Shah's relationship, you're not recognizing the, the reality, the new, the, 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 the contribution as the revolutionaries saw it of their revolution. So, but again, it's okay at the moment because the moderates, are, or the moderates, the Bajian government are, are, are the ones they're doing business with. And actually, initially, it kind of goes quite well. Khamenei um, retreats to Hong, the idea that, yes, the clerics aren't going to run the government, he's going to go back to his holy city and sit there and maybe make diktats on social policy. Um, there are certain requests for, for food supplies and spare parts. Bars again tells the journalist he sees no reason why Iran may be able to buy Iran. Arms again. Um, even the traumatic seizure. It's very like on, on, on Valentine's Day, 1979. Just maybe a week, two weeks since the new US policy. The embassy is overrun. Overrun by hostile leftist militants who hold everybody up at gunpoint, threaten to kill everybody. And weirdly, this seems a positive development. Because the government comes and rescues them. They rescue the, uh, the, uh, the embassy. So the main problem, I can see your screen. The main problem here that America faces is the security situation. And that's uh, essentially, uh, after the revolution, the Azeri, Kurds, and Arabs all see it as an opportunity to push their agenda. We have massive ethnic... Uh, um, revolt, um, and a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of people being uh, assassinated here, there, and everywhere, and America is blamed. America it's, just cannot understand this. They, they think it's self-evident that this is not in America's interest, and yet community kind of calls them the American left and the denouncement of these people. And America is widely blamed for these kind of ethnic revolts. Um, and things really slide, and, and, and the killer blow comes in May with the Javits uh, Amendment. This guy, uh, 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 Senator Jacob Javits, a close friend of the Shah's sister, harshly critical of the, uh, the revolution's persecution of the Iranian Jewish community, uh, which, which was, you know, was occurring. But the problem, as the, Amer the Iranian says, was like, how many resolutions were passed during the Shah's era condemning human rights abuse in Iran? Zero. So that base hypocrisy seems apparent. Um, and it's kind of a long list of unhelpful congressional 
uh, interventions. Uh, to skip forward a bit, the Americans then have this problem of how are we going to resurrect things? And, and the one way they think is, okay, what we'll do is we will share intelligence. We will meet these people and we will hand over vital intelligence on the Soviet Union. And then that will not only demonstrate the vulnerability they have to the Soviets, but they will also de demonstrate our willingness to cooperate against them. Uh, and they do so. Um, and this is where it gets a little bit controversial because um, there's a recent article that came out by Mark Ejarovsky where he says that in October 79, the Americans went to Iran in a secret diplomacy, secret intelligence briefing, and said, listen, Iraq is about to attack you. They have advanced invasion plans. They have all sorts of... Uh, they're working with uh, Arab separatists. They're, they're, they're all... You know, look, look at the satellite intelligence. And his general thesis is that had it not been for the hostage crisis, then Iran, these briefings would be carried on, and then uh, the whole invasion by Iraq would have not happened, and it was a self-inflicted wound. Now, my version of that, having kind of discussed and talked to this with most of the people who were involved in it, time, is that this, <laughs> I'm sceptical, put it that way. I'm sceptical because I don't believe that the US had any intelligence indicating an imminent Iraqi threat at this point. Um, and the notion that they did is disputed by pretty much everyone else in government at that time. And I, what I think essentially was happening is that the Americans were feeding them quite a lot of juicy intelligence, or at least making a worst case scenario of saying, look, <laughs> you're, you're under threat here, look at our wonderful SIGINT that can help you, let's cooperate on this. It's, it's a clear engagement strategy. Now, just to, to, to sort of bring up the conclusion, and I'm going to pay five minutes, I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> two, two final events basically rule out engagement, both avoidable. The first one uh, is the decision to allow the Shah entry into the United States, which is probably the right thing to do morally, but if you are committed to a highly realist, pragmatic, Cold War-centric foreign policy, it's a dumb idea. And it's a dumb idea because everybody in the US Embassy is saying, if you let this man into the US, forget it. We're going to be in trouble. And it comes to pass. The second, perhaps even more important, or clumsy mistake, is when Brzezinski, this hawkish national security advisor, um, meets with uh, Barzagan on the, on the sidelines of a diplomatic meeting in Algiers. And it's photographed shaking hands, and it's all over the news. And again, this, <laughs> the irony is that Brzezinski comes back and says, Oh my god, these guys are actually, we, we can do business with them, they are really anti communist, great. The Iranians say, Oh, what are you doing? This was the guy that we knew was the one who wanted to have a coup to crush the, the revolution. Why are you shaking hands with them? More importantly, Barzagan had not sought permission from the Revolutionary Council or Khomeini to meet this guy. It undermined perception that Khomeini was going to be a permanent fixture in Iranian decision-making. Um, and then, it's actually, it seems that that was the thing that provoked the hostage crisis. The, the embassy actually reports that all was well, actually, when the, the Shah was admitted for medical treatment. The Shah was dying, by the way, of cancer. Um, but when this photo appears, that's when it, it all goes pay-tong and you get this hostage crisis. Now, this really cements Iran's irrational credentials in the, in, in the world now, and still the much the, the sort of perspective. Um, the interesting thing is how America responds, and it kind of reinforces everything I'm saying here, because they've got this huge crisis. What do they do? And what they really do is they carry on with a realist 
approach they do, they, they, they say, well, well, there must be some moderates out there that we can appeal to. They must know that this is a stupid thing to do. And then when the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan occurs on their border, they think, why are they engineering a crisis with us when they've got this self-evident threat on their northern border? In other words, the, we, we can show you the threat you're facing now, and you're still having a confrontation with us. It seems irrational. Um, but the, the perverse thing is that just at this most intense confrontation, America becomes preoccupied with Iran's security. And it now is hamstrung. It's not going to attack Iran. It's not even going to destabilize it with sanctions to the point where it collapses. Because then it thinks that will be the precursor to the Soviet invasion. Um, so that's one minute, Rohan. Please, please bear with me. Vision. You have an Iranian understanding. I do. It's a very Why do I think it all went wrong then? Um, I mean, it would be harsh and extreme to blame American diplomats for, for, for the, you know, obviously the hostage crisis, which was I mean, the decision to plot. The Americans accepted the revolution, they deserved credit for that. They engaged with it, Iran, and they deserved credit for that. They re even resisted certain domestic pressures undermining rapprochement. But this construction and execution of engagement suffered from uh, this, this number of deficiencies. Um, from Washington's perspective, the fundamental dynamics of the US-Iranian relationship had not changed. They, they looked at this, keeping Iran out of Soviet the Soviet, Soviet orbit had seemed critical to American strategies since World War II. And the main, essentially, this basis of an engagement strategy uh, kind of failed for, for four reasons. First, it was not perceived by sufficient alarm in Iran by widened base. Secondly, it represented terms too similar to the Shah's relationship. Uh, thirdly, it, it required a degree of American participation in Iranian affairs that simply was uh, politically unacceptable. And fourth, perhaps most importantly, it toxified the group of Iranian elites that the US hoped to engage, making them easy targets uh, for, uh, for anti-American propaganda. Um, so in other words, we've got a kind of well-meaning strategy here, but based on, on, on a completely anachronistic framework for, for what the Iranian uh, revolution uh, had achieved. I think I'll leave it there. <laughs> All right, so um, we have about half an hour or so for, for, for questions and answers. So what I think is I'll, I'll, take, I'll take three questions at a time. Now, there's a lot of you and there's only half an hour. Okay. That means questions are not, don't come with a long preamble. Short, to the point, and it ends with a question mark. Those include the ones I've counted as well. Yes. And if you could please state your name and if you any affiliation you can get to. Yes, Brian. Yes, I think stand up. Uh, Brian Gibson, Pinto Postdoctoral Fellow. Um, I'm curious, Chris, you and I have engaged a lot in this topic, but to what extent do you feel that the kind of regionalist, uh, globalist divide in U.S. foreign policy circles contributed to America's ineptitude during the 1978 crisis and the crisis that ensued thereafter? Globalists being guys like Nixon, Kissinger, or Brzezinski, and regionalists being guys like George Paul or Henry Craig. Fantastic model question, Brian. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's, that's what I want. <laughs> Any other questions? <laughs> cool. 
Who's Silas James? You must be more, I'm sure. Yes, sir. Really, just what you did say at the beginning. Could you give your name, please? Arnold Clickman, member of No more than that. You did say that you were going to talk about the implications of this history as to what's been happening at the moment in Geneva. So I'd like you to make some comments on that. Thank you. I'll take one more. Yes, lady. I'm Shibuya Yazani from LSE, and I would like to ask you to talk about the impact of the sanctions since 1984 against Iran, that it's not only international sanctions related to the nuclear program. Since that time, there have been overwhelming unilateral sanctions against Iran's economy, which really affected the US foreign policy against Iran. Thank you. Um, regionalist or globalist? Yeah, I mean, I think you do have a genuine strategist in Brzezinski of that Kissinger mould. Um, and he is coming up against these kind of localised State Department people. Uh, and I think there is a, 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 a real tension. And I think what you see is actually um, initially the State Department uh, win because uh, the, they dominate the process of engagement. Brzezinski walks away from Iran policy after failing to launch a coup. Um, and then the, and the State Department essentially left to run the show by themselves. And then after the hostage crisis, Brzezinski comes back and tells us, I told you so. <laughs> and then the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan occurs, which the Carter administration completely misread. They see it as an offensive action designed to essentially, uh, as a staging post to, to, to warm water ports, uh, ports into, into Iran, Pakistan, or whatever. In fact, and the guy next to you, will, I'll tell you, will tell you, is much more of an expert on this than me, but in fact, it, it was a defensive measure designed to shore up their, their southern border. So, um, Brzezinski, at the end, kind of does this globalist, and he sees, and he has a green strategy where he sees political Islam as, as some kind of buffer to the Soviet Union. Um, he wins at the end, and at the end, we get a very, the Carter Doctrine, ultimately which is the legacy. It, it, it's, it's this idea of projection of massive American power into the Persian Gulf and the total reversal of the Nixon doctrine was to rely on regional proxies. So, to answer your question, regionalism at the start, colonialism <laughs> at the end. Um, the implications of, of um, what, what went on in Geneva. I read a blog on this, actually, just at the end of last week. And I was struck because I think the main feature of what went right recently in Geneva was that the trust deficit, this idea that, 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 that for, for the first time both sides seem to now persuade each other that they have good intentions towards each other. And I think that, that if it has occurred, and I think it hasn't, and it's, and it's occurred in, in surprising ways. We know now that the uh, Americans have been meeting the Iranians in a lot of back-channel diplomacy in, in Amman, in hotel rooms in Geneva, on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly uh, in New York. And it seems to be at those meetings that this is very much a, a US... It's, it's, I see it as US, an advance in US-Iranian relations that made Geneva possible. Um, so, and, I, and I think that the, the problem of the trust de deficit is clearly apparent because the actual dynamics of what was agreed, everybody has known. Iran would be allowed to enrich to 3 or 5%, uh, it would get that right enshrined, but it would have to have much more um, scrupulous oversight, and it would probably have to limit it, or ship out, or convert, or dilute its 20% in random. Um, 
and everybody would be happy, and the sanctions would then be sequentially ramped down. That's what they'd agreed. And everyone knew, knew that that was going to be what they would agree. But it's taken, I think, this secret back-channel diplomacy to actually get what was missing, and has been missing for 34 years, which decided that both people think uh, that, uh, that they now are serious about each other. And if you, to, to, to the other background to why this, this worked, I think, is look at the international situation, where Iran has benefited from the fact that America's relations with its two biggest allies, the Saudis uh, and Israel, are in crisis. Uh, America is profoundly fed up with Israelis, with Netanyahu constantly going above Obama's head and uh, basically appealing to the American public in Congress. He's fed up that they've not moderated their um, settlement policy, thus are not able to negotiate in good faith with the Palestinians. Um, he sees that as a limitation to his foreign policy. And I think in the Saudis, they're actually annoyed because the, the, the Americans didn't support them in Bahrain enough as they saw it. They gave up on Mubarak too early. Uh, they um, essentially did not what do what the Saudis want them to do, which is essentially protect the status quo. So the fact that those two relations are in crisis, and the fact that America's been able to work with other allies in the region, Russia in Syria, uh, and the fact that if you look at the, the two letters that were exchanged between Iran and, and America during that Syrian crisis, when we thought there was going to be intervention, it shows how much that they were they were cooperating. So. Uh, the international, I think, domestically, I think what the deal shows is that the Congress have been outmaneuvered. They didn't know about this back channel diplomacy, uh, particularly. They um, have been weakened by the, the whole government shutdown stuff. Uh, they've been positioned into the warmongering camp. And APAC has not been able to prod Congress into, into being in Syria. Obama stood up to them in Iran, so they seem to be weakened. And then the third one, the individual the political will of Obama, the guy who was elected with a mandate to engage Iran, but ultimately gave up very quickly as, as, as a treat of price, single roll of the dice. He now needs a foreign policy legacy. He's been critiqued all over the place. He needs success. And he's engaged, and he's free of electoral problems. He doesn't need to get re-elected, so he's, he's political capital. So I think the international, domestic, and, and, and foreign, and the trust is, is why that, that went right there. Um, sanctions. Uh, why do you pick 1984 in particular? Because of the uh, actually, I was thinking about the future of the relationship, how it could be justified by such overwhelming sanctions since that time, and also the interference of the US during the Iran Iraq War. Yeah, I mean the interesting thing about the sanctions, the sanctions start in '79 in response to the hostage crisis. Uh, initially, there's a essentially a, a, a symbolic oil embargo because America wasn't buying any oil from Iran anyway. Symbolic. They actually, only the first sanctions come in April 1980, which, considering this is six months into the cross, hostage crisis, seems to be quite restrained. Um, and I think the key point then, as now, was that sanctions were a tool to avoid war. And that was, if you look at the way the Americans went to the Europeans in 1980 and said, listen, we are isolated here, even if we can't get our best mates to support sanctions. And America, Iran, Europe didn't want to support sanctions against Iran. Right, well, it's not got a lot to do with us, and we buy a lot more things from Iran. It's going to hurt us a lot more. So why should we sacrifice more for a crisis which has nothing to do with us? The way he gets them to agree is that, listen, if you don't, then we're intervening because we can't look this vulnerable. And they, <laughs> sadly, they intervene anyway. <laughs> uh, which, uh, uh, so Europe is kind of sold out there. But that's the point. 
They're seen as a lever to avoid war. I think when we get into the 90s and onwards, sanctions just become a, a, a policy of, of last resort and, and a lack of ambition. And, they just, and, and also, remember, a lot of this has been driven by American domestic politics. And uh, speaking badly about Iran is, 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 is not a bad political ploy in America. So um, I, I think that the domestic politics explains and the lack of alternatives. And, and Obama, again, if you look at why he ratcheted up sanctions, was that basically he wanted to avoid war, and he thought that that was the best way of staving off the Israelis. So um, they have... And, and, and to the last point is that the narrative is that sanctions have forced the, Ameri the Iranians to the table now. And I think it's a, it would be stupid to say that the Iranians are not super motivated to get the sanctions. This is the most comprehensive sanctions the world has practically ever seen. And it reflects the fact that, for years, America didn't know how to sanction a country which was the third largest producer of oil in the world. It's very difficult to do. And the formula that they came up with was like, well, we can't really stop people buying it. We'll try and stop Iran getting paid for it. And they hit the banks. And they, they, they isolated from all the international transactions, SWIFT and all this kind of stuff. And it worked, and Iran had its income halved, and, and it lost 60% of its currency valuation in, in, in a matter of days. Um, so, uh, there is a profound reason why Iran would want to get those reversed, but then if you look at that, look at the, 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 the 10 years of sanctions against the, the nuclear crisis. When they first started, Iran's had about 140 centrifuges. When they've now started, Iran's got 18,000 centrifuges. It's built a new generation of centrifuges. It's built one reactor, it's put another one on the national grid. And even now, it would not submit to zero enrichment, which was the core demand of the sanctions. So therefore, um, the, the main, as I see it, the main shift was that the West finally decided that the Iranian nuclear facility was so sophisticated that it was just not going to get dismantled and that it would have to accept some enrichment on Iranian soil. The, the Americans essentially shifted. So the there's a reason, I think, that all the sanctions literature is, is quite negative. So I, wouldn't, I hope this is not taken as the, as the kind of the, the model, the success for why sanctions are now great, personally. Um, okay. Let's take one more round. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Yes. Um, I, I want uh, the name is Jesse Harrington. Hi. Hi. I wanted to ask what happens to the oil contracts before the revolution and after the revolution and how that affects like Caspian and Russian like oil and the second question I have is if one looks at it from the point of Iran that is it's like as a defensive measure can you give us like a short analysis of the nuclear capacity around the region what's happening like is there any nuclear threat to Iran from, um, from all that's happening. Um, Hold on, let me take it. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Toby. Yeah, uh, Toby Dodge, I'm a former colleague of Chris Emery. Let me try and uh, link uh, the book to the, what's interesting the crowd behind us, the, uh, the current situation. As I understand it, your thesis is that US diplomacy, the State Department engages fundamentally misunderstood where the revolution was going. They, they branded it as an anti-communist, and actually it was as much anti-American as Soviet. Now, isn't there a danger that under a kind of realist logic of competing interests, the Obama administration has fundamentally misunderstood the interests of the present regime, 
uh, which aren't about negotiating away their nuclear program or taming it, they're about gaining a regional dominance, regional hegemony. And, the U and, and in doing so, alienating what have traditionally been US allies on the other side of the world. So they're selling out their long-term Arab uh, uh, allies for a short-term game that will be ephemeral. Wow. Yes, I kind of saw your picture at the start, uh, the anti-Raiders picture that was in America um, in the late 70s. I, was, uh, I wondered um, how much you believe that an anti-Iranian sentiment in the US at the time can have affected the desire of the American government to work with the new Iranian regime. The new Iranian regime. Now? No, as in uh, Oh, sorry. As in the, rev as in the, the regime of the revolution produced at the time. So in the 80s, I guess, early 80s. Why, why did they agree to... What impact did anti-Americanism in the US have on their desire to engage? Okay. Um, okay, right. It's not an easy question. Yeah. <laughs> um, can I quickly Wikipedia Caspian oil policy? Seriously. I don't know anything about Caspian oil politics that are related to, to the 1979 oil crisis. I'm, I'm terribly sorry. The, the, I do know something about uh, the oil uh, contracts, which, and there was a big, the, the fundamental debate that occurred with the sanctions was that the Europeans wanted the sanctions to be not retroactive. In other words, they had all sorts of economic, including oil. And the other thing to bear in mind is that oil production essentially collapsed in Iran after the revolution. So there wasn't really much oil being produced, let alone exported. But the general picture for, um, for sanctions was that the, a lot of deals had been done and that the Europeans wanted to, to keep them, but the Americans wanted them to, anything that was on the books, to, to be kind of gotten rid of. The Europeans wanted to only cancel things that had been signed after November the 4th, 79, when the hostage was, was taken. So that doesn't answer your question at all, but it, it sort of implies something about uh, the, how, the, how they interpreted when the contract was signed was very important. And bear in mind also that the, the Western Europeans were buying a lot more, as they were recently, which is why I didn't think they were, the EU was ever going to go with an oil embargo, was the, the Western Europeans were a lot more reliant on Persian Gulf oil than the Americans were. And that kind of tied into their reluctance to go with the sanctions as well, because again they were saying, well, we're taking a much bigger hit for an ostensible crisis that's nothing to do with us. Um, what, the, the, what, nuke, what threat does, does Iran face nuclear-wise? Well, what, 140 Israeli warheads, I suppose? Um, <laughs> <laughs> it can be landed by nuclear, by submarines, bombers, by... Um, well, that's it. I mean, I mean, and the American nuclear deterrent, I mean, but I think... I don't think... Iran is, 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 is quaking in fear and building out you know, the shelters in the gardens at the moment. I, I, I think uh, Iran is a rational actor. I have no sense that the, 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 the idea that it isn't a rational actor has ever entered seriously in, into decision-making amongst P5 plus 1. So um, I, I just don't think Iran feels vulnerable that way. But then again, it knows that if <laughs> it launched a missile, which it doesn't have, uh, at Israel, then it would, of course, be wiped off the map. Gaining hegemony, and of course this is true, Toby, uh, 
because the, the Saudis remember that it was the Americans that essentially built the Shah up as the region's policeman and built up Iran's hegemonic power, and they don't want to see a return to that. Um, do I think that there is a, a, a do I think that, that there is an ambition in Iran for that to re recover that hegemonic position? Probably, but is there a capacity to achieve that? I'm, I'm less sure. I'm, I'm much less sure about that. Um, is there is that an ephemeral aim? Ultimately, I think what the Americans have realised is that decades long of relying on the Israelis and the and the Saudis as their kind of two most important regional allies has not delivered the kind of stability and uh, the flexibility in, in, that, they, that they wanted it to. And I think that they're both kind of questioning the, the basis of that relationship. Uh, whether a massive strategic alliance with Iran is the answer is doubtful, but I don't think they're thinking about that now. I just think Obama is thinking this nuclear process, this problem, is the greatest threat to world peace at the moment, and I need to resolve it. And if that involves pissing off the Saudis and the Israelis, so what? I think that's my view. Um, what was it? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm struggling with this question. Do I think anti-Americanism in America? Yeah, at the time. By, do you mean anti-Americanism by Americans or by? <laughs> by the, sorry, sorry, anti-Iranian sentiment. Oh, anti-Iranian. Anti oh, okay, sorry. well, sorry, sorry. Anti-Iranian. <laughs> <laughs> I subverted self-loathing going on. I've no idea. Uh, no, no, I do have a clear idea. The. Um, the, one of the important things to note about the US-Iranian relationship is that there's a profound disconnect between uh, the way Iranians believe, believe and, and, and frame America's influence, which is this pervasive, all-consuming, kind of omnipotent power that, that pulls all the, you know, the, the threads and is, and is behind the ethnic rebellions and is behind the leftist assassinations and was behind the, 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 the Shah going into America for some coup. Of, I think this kind of obsession with American power is simply not the case in America. I don't think Americans have much reference point for Iran. And you, and you actually, nor do the government, you sit, I, you look at the, at the documents in this period and they're like, it's like, what's an Ayatollah? You know, <laughs> <laughs> people, people don't know. People literally don't know. Um, I think that in, uh, and again, people don't know the difference between Shia and Sunni. They don't know that Iranians are Persian, not Arab. They don't, there's a basic lack, there's a basic ignorance driving. So I think there's a disconnect between the, the obsession that the Iranians have over American kind of, and then this general kind of. I think what changes probably is, is that then in, in that hostage crisis, uh, in which case, do you get this image of the, 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 the militant Iranian who is running around, global sponsors of terror? I think that firmly is an image, and it's an important image, and the, the demonization of, of Iran is, is, is really a very potent power of, of, of issue in politics in America. In America. But that's, that doesn't have any bearing on engagement in February 79. That's after November 79, that's when it all goes wrong, in my opinion. Um, was, that, was that all of them? Can I ask you a question? Of course you can. Maybe a bit easier than Yeah, no, no. Genuine question. I mean, I'm not trying to make a point right now. Is there, you're one of the few people that has actually systematically gone through all the documents, pretty much all the US, available US documents, from the Carter period, 
you've interviewed all the big, with the exception of Carter and Brzezinski, pretty much yeah. everyone else. Too much important people. Yeah. Well, <laughs> no, I, know no, that, no. I know that. From no, I know, I know. But, but, but I mean, you know, a lot of people, and you might be, you might very well be one of the last people to, to do that. Um, uh, is there anything that you don't know about <laughs> U.S. policy? You know, during the period. No, no, no. I'm obviously, but I mean, <laughs> but is there something you don't know that you really want to know? Is, is there any obvious? Is there any big gap in our knowledge? Is there some source out there that you know needs to be declassified? What is the? What's the missing bit? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because unlike other periods of, of Iranian, and we went to a conference in Manchester when they were still trying to piece together the 1953 coup. The Americans are really very bad at, at, at releasing the documents for that. The, there's a slightly different situation with this period because a lot of the documents come apart, come into the public domain uh, reluctantly because they're, they're all sat in the, Iranian, in the American embassy when it's sat by the Iranians and then the Iranians piece it all together, even the bits that have been shredded, the, 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 the good shredder breaks. So, the, so they get all these people to, you know, I'm sure you've all seen Argo. Um, and, uh, and and so a lot of, of the juicy stuff, for example, and I don't really get to speak about this, but there's a, a lot of a lot of dodgy, very high risk uh, CIA operations going on, trying to well, trying to gain contact with the Sharif Madari group, uh, with various other sectors groups. Uh, they're very clumsy and they don't really achieve anything. They're certainly not directed towards counter revolution, but they're clumsy. Um, not all of those documents are around, and I would love to, to, to hear more of those. I would love because I don't buy Mark Azarowski's as much as I think his work is amazing and I think it's a really important article he wrote. I don't buy the notion that Iran was warned or that America possessed that imminent intelligence of, a, of, a, of an Iraqi threat in October 79, bearing in mind they didn't even attack until September 1980. Um, I'd like to know what was said during those intelligence briefings. I really would. Uh, because George Cave, who was the CIA, lead CIA agent, he was on the books for the CIA until last year, so he'd said nothing. Uh, he gave the interview to Kazirowski, which I think was flawed, and I emailed him, and he basically just said, yeah, well, everything I said to Kazirowski was true. Which, so I'd like to know more about that. Mm -hmm. um, we'll work on it. Yeah. <laughs> the new documents are coming out. I mean, we see the ones on the yeah, airplane. That's the Yes, that's the next book. <laughs> yeah. Yes, please. Yes. My name is Ahmed Raisi. I've got a question about... Um, Iran at the moment is uh, a strong country with sanctions, with a lot of problems inside and outside. Mm -hmm. Do you think if we close to the America, what's happening for the future Iran? Being stronger, being uh, a trade for neighbors? Um, sorry, sorry, sorry. I keep getting premature. Yes, at the back there. Hi, my name is Mary Gillespie, and I was wondering, you mentioned the um, Death to America chart. Yeah. Um, and given that in, uh, I think it's the 34th anniversary of it, in their ceremony that they recently had of all the soldiers in Iran, they still had the Death to America chant. Do you think that even under Irani, um, there's an, still underlying hostilities that always will be between Iran and America? Yes. Hi, uh, my name is Daria Mohammed. Um, I was wondering how did, you briefly touched on this, but I was wondering if you could expand upon it in a little time for a minute. How did America utilize its allies, in particular Great Britain and the European countries, in this situation? And did American policy indirectly then impact 
European policy towards Iran in this very important period after revolution as well? Oh, okay. Um, implica I think what you're asking is what the implications of a US-Iranian rapprochement. Um, difficult to say because it's difficult to know how far and deep the cooperation would go. There, I mean, the one thing I would say is there are some, lots of obvious areas of mutual interest and mutual cooperation, even in Syria. I mean, these two, they're, they're on the top opposing sides, but they both share common interests. Common interest being neither of them want the US intervention there. Uh, both of them... Uh, don't want to see any more chemical weapons used there, and more, and more importantly, neither of them want to see kind of sunny jihadist Al Qaeda linked government uh, forces doing well there. So there is a lot of com common area that can cooperate there. They can cooperate on the navigation of the sea issues. They can cooperate on, on piracy in Somalia. They can cooperate on drugs trade in Afghanistan. Uh, they can cooperate in Iraq. So there, there are so many areas of, of mutual interest. I would argue. Probably more areas of mutual interest in the Saudis. Now, I'm not saying that, that, that they're going to, America's going to throw the Saudis under a bus and get in bed with Iran. I, I don't think so, but there's a reason why every single US president has tried, by and large, to engage Iran and, and failed. So they must see some benefits in there, and there are mutual interests. Um, I think, to an extent, Iran is still a strategic choice, but I think it gets back to, into Toby at the idea of. The key point is how will the other allies react? How will the Saudis respond? Will they, as alleged, have this backdoor deal with the Pakistanis where they, they buy a nuclear weapon off them or, or whatever? I don't know. Um, it would be it would be difficult, but I think we are seeing a decline in Saudi power. I think we're seeing a disastrous Israeli foreign policy, and I think um, <coughs> there are serious benefits for US Iranian repression. Um, and remember, uh, uh, an Iran which is not threatened, and Iran is threatened fundamentally, is Iran which is ultimately a more secure Iran, is probably more likely to be a more moderate Iran, and, and a less threatening Iran, and, and, a, and a country that's less likely to proliferate. Um, what was the other question? Und uh, underlying hostility to Iran. Is, there, is that inevitable? I think, I don't know, I'm not Iraq. This is a difficult one for me. I'm not Iraqian. <laughs> Uh, Nobody's perfect. No, nobody's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I, know, I know, I know. I never buy the idea that there is massive hostility to America in Iran. I think, uh, and there, there are certain stats that actually Iran have more favourable uh, perception of America than any other country in the region. Um, I think that the government in Iran has anti-Americanism as a pillar of its revolutionary identity, and deconstructing that will be problematic. But it's not impossible. Um, so, no, I, I, I don't see it as a, as a permanent feature of, of the landscape. And I do think that Rouhani, I think there is already evidence of, 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 of moderation and softening that line. And I think um, that would be the one thing. I don't, I don't think it's always, I think there's going to be hysterical Friday prayers occasionally. But, but my prediction would be as US Iranian relations improve, if they do improve, that you will see less reliance on this um, as a prediction. Uh, how did they utilise the allies? Um, well, in different ways, um, the British had pretty good intelligence on what was going on in Iran, and, and, and the Israelis did as well, and, and they, they, uh, they, they certainly shared it. Uh, the 
in terms of diplomacy, when uh, in 1980, in January 1980, the Iranians, the Americans put together a package to the Iranians shortly after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and said, listen, this confrontation is just ridiculous. You've got this massive threat here. We can cooperate. We will end the, this hostage crisis, end the sanctions. Here's some intelligence on what's going on in the Soviets. And it was passed through the Swiss, the Swiss ambassador Lang. And uh, that was probably the start of, of, of the relationship that the, that the Americans have always had with the Swiss in terms of as a, as a, as a, as a kind of conduit. Um, they desperately needed uh, America, uh, the Europeans to be supportive on the sanctions. They desperately did, because if you can't get your best mates to support you, and it's such an egregious action of criminality, you look, when you're trying to isolate Iran, and it's you who looks isolated, and at the same time the Europeans are saying, we are not going to touch sanctions against Russia because of Afghanistan, that was dangerous to them. So they really needed the Europeans to come on board with that. And reluctantly, and largely symbolically, <laughs> they do. But then, as I said, they get incredibly annoyed because then, literally two days, sorry, two, two, two days after the, um, the Secretary of State had flown to Geneva, I think it was Geneva, to, to persuade the, the, the Europeans to go with sanctions, and he says, listen, if you don't do this, I can't stop a military intervention. Um, they, they, they launched this doomed rescue mission, I think two days after the Europeans agreed, and it, they're so unhappy about it. Um, so it, it, it's a mixed bag. I don't think US foreign policy in some way stands or falls on European cooperation now at this point. Okay. I think we'll stop there. Um, now, first of all, to tell you that copies of Chris's book are on sale outside for mm. half price. <laughs> so you will not get it at a better price than that. And I'm sure he will graciously sign it for you. Yes. Um, uh, all that leaves me to do is to thank Chris and thank you for coming um, and to tell you that the next NEC event is a panel discussion on protest and revolution in the Arab world, reflections three years on, and that's on Wednesday at 6pm. So please join me in thanking Chris.